would like to introduce Tim Lacerdo, who runs an amazing organisation called Democracy in Colour, and he is going to do a bit of spoken word and a bit of firing up for you all tonight. Give it up for Tim. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Climactic, your story on climate change. This week we speak to Tim Lacerdo, an activist here in Melbourne and leader of the group Democracy in Colour. They've been very active in Melbourne in the lead up to the Victorian state election. But it was actually a couple months ago that I first saw and heard Tim. It was an event held at quite short notice after the leadership spill we saw here in Australia. And as you'd expect, a lot of the environmental groups and justice groups who are active in Melbourne were quite concerned that Scott Morrison, a famously coal-loving politician, was our new prime minister. So speaking in that atmosphere of, of fear and uncertainty, Tim got up on the stage and fired us all up for the event. So I was really interested to sit down with him after and see what made him tick. See what gave him the courage to stand up in front of a crowd of thousands and get us fired up to take on some pretty huge challenges. So what you'll hear first is a recording of that speech, and then I sit down with Tim for a chat. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we're on. I'd like to acknowledge that we are on stolen lands, and that sovereignty was never ceded. I'd also like to acknowledge the violence that the coal lobby inflicts on this land, on our climate, disproportionately affects and impacts First Nations people. We're here today because we know that a better future is possible. But when our institutions incarcerate the highest number of Indigenous people on the planet, when there have been hundreds of black deaths in custody, when Indigenous kids are ten times more likely to be taken into care than non-Indigenous kids. No future will be worth fighting for unless it centres the sovereignty and self-determination of First Nations people. My name is Tim and I work at Democracy in Colour. We are a racial justice campaigning organisation led by people of colour. And that is why I am here speaking today. Because we're not just a racial justice organisation, and this is not just a rally on climate change, but this is a rally about justice, and we are an organisation for justice, and you are people who believe in justice. justice. Scott Morrison, our new Prime Minister, is a master. He is a master at this type of politics. He made his career turning people of colour into political punching bags. He's a race-baiting expert, a professional fearmonger, and a core architect of offshore torture camps that have abused hundreds of people. He's one of our chief coal merchants, 
And he's a power-hungry political operative who represents and personifies the worst of this country. But again, let's be clear, they all are. Morrison, Dutton, Turnbull, it doesn't matter. They're just different faces of the same broken system that relies on exploiting our dignity, our humanity, our bodies and our aspirations to fuel an exploitative and degrading economy. And while that's all happening, while that's happening, they lie, they manipulate, they find convenient scapegoats to convince us that our neighbour is to blame. I'm not sure about you. I'm not sure about you, but I'm pretty sick and tired. I've been treated like a pawn on their chessboard. And I think we need to do two things to break this model. The first one is we need to change the way power operates. We need to shift power away from the boardrooms of ASX 100 companies and the corridors of Parliament House. And we need to shift power back to our communities. And moments like this are crucial to that. And the actions that we take from now on will be crucial to that. And the second thing we need to do, the second thing we need to do is we need to stop seeing silos. We're not climate activists or environmentalists or anti-racism campaigners or labour rights activists. We're simply people who believe in justice. We're simply people who believe in a better world. And we're people who know. We're people who know that there is only one barrier. There is only one barrier to that world being realised. And that is predatory capitalism. So this is a tall ass. Tackling a system on which everything is built is a tall ass. But we have done this before. This country has a proud history of social change. Australian unions were the first to secure the eight-hour working day. Australian women were the first to win the right to stand in federal parliament. We built a world-class healthcare system. There is a proud and long history of indigenous resistance to colonisation. And none of this was inevitable. This only happened because everyday people came together and saw injustice anywhere as a threat to justice everywhere. And it happened because people like you came to rallies like this and decided to take collective action because they knew, as you know, that our fates are bound. Thank you. All right, Tim, so we're at the top level of Donkey Wheel House. I've never sat down with someone who had kind of done that at a rally before. At least yeah. that was my introduction to them. And I'm like, what gets someone to that point? What was pushing you up there? What was that, that well you were feeding from to be like, yeah, let's go, climate action, yes. Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, thanks for having me on the, on the show. Uh, and I guess the answer to your question is that I've been involved in 
you know, activism for, for a little while now, the past sort of eight or so years. And I got started in, in high school. You know, my, my mother's um, Chinese, my dad's Italian, and I was born in Brisbane. So the story of, you know, my life is your quintessential Australian multicultural experience. Uh, and I grew up hearing the, the stories that my parents would tell me about their experiences of racism. You know, my, my, back when my dad was growing up, it was fashionable to bully Italians. He got bullied because his parents couldn't speak English because of the type of food he brought to school. Um, my mum, you know, got bullied because she's visibly, you know, different. All of the stereotypes that come with being Chinese, seeing her getting racially abused in public, all of those sorts of things. And then experiencing racism myself through high school. First name becomes Chink, go back to where you came from, becomes the weekly mantra of the playground, you know, throats thrown at you from passing by cars, your house gets egged a couple of times. All of these different experiences add up to show you that people prepared to treat you differently based off the colour of your skin. And I think growing up through high school, I experienced this particular type of pain. Uh, and I realised that whilst not everybody had experienced that, I, I, I realised that everybody knew what it felt like to be alone, like everybody knew what it felt like to have your back against the wall and feel like the whole world's against you. I had a friend who felt like he couldn't be himself because he liked other guys. I had a friend who, you know, wrestled with her reflection every time she looked into the mirror because she felt her body image didn't conform to society's expectations of what a woman should look like. Uh, and so I came to this realisation, you know, not wasn't one experience, it was a, you know, a series of experiences that showed me that like it's a condition of living in this society in this type of system where uh, people you know with with dreams and hopes and aspirations um, are broken down uh, are degraded and their dignity and their worth and their humanity is degraded to fuel the interests of the special elite and that could look like racism it could look like sexism it could look like homophobia classism able discrimination around ability, any, whatever it, it looks like, uh, for the vast majority of us, I came to the realisation that this system, this structure, doesn't serve us and it is fundamentally about like exploiting our aspirations, our dignity, our bodies to fuel an exploitative and degrading economy. You, you're Just, very in touch with your story, which is great. I love talking to people who you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah. Very in touch with what got you here, which is great. Yeah. Starting from high school, like you must have had other classmates, friends in your peer group who, like again, you know, this Australia, we're a very multicultural society. There are other people who as well who didn't, so it easily slot into the white-centric society, and they must have had a rough time as well, but some of them probably didn't follow your path of going into activism. They didn't actively decide to try to change the society. Why was it that you wanted to, to change the society and make things better? Because it was wrong. I think there are a couple of things here. I think, like, one, you know, there's no doubt that I'm an inherently privileged person. You know, I've had a, a relatively privileged person. I've had a, a bunch of uh, experiences and opportunities that have been afforded to me that uh, not everybody gets afforded to. You know, an opportunity to, to get an education, an opportunity to go to university, an opportunity uh, and, and a certain amount of economic freedom to be able to volunteer my spare time. Uh, which is where I got some of my early advocacy experiences with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. I'll talk about them a bit later. And I think the second, so that's one, you know, uh, relatively privileged upbringing and environment. I think the second one is that that, that sort of stems from that, that relative privilege is these experiences that showed me the power of everyday people coming together to take collective action, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and to believe that together everyday people have intrinsic power and that we can fight back against special interests 
we can win as a result. And I think that's probably one of the core differences that I think like most people care about a variety of issues very deeply, but have been shown consistently by democracy that has been consistently perverted by big money in politics, by you know, lobbyists, by vested interests that they don't have a role to play in politics. So I think, you know, apathy is just a symptom of disenfranchisement, being disempowered, not that people actually don't care about these issues. So there's nothing that necessarily separates me other than the fact that I have been fortunate enough to have a series of experiences that showed me early on that everyday people coming together, taking collective action, can fight back and can win against um, disproportionate power, unimaginable odds, and that has really shaped my belief in people power, my passion for it, uh, and the work that I've done since. So you had the means to take part in activism because you, you give full credit to the fact you had the, the privilege of being able to. You had some free time. You were able to volunteer. You had the drive to do it because you experienced racism growing up in Australian society with this background you have and not conforming exactly. Then did you find it was quite sustaining for you? Was it quite rewarding to do this work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's something about, there's a whole conversation around the nature of work that we could go into, but probably don't have the time to. But I, I think from a very... You can do a, a very, multi-parter, that's fine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I've, again, from a, from a very young age, have been very uh, interested in finding work that I found meaningful and purposeful. Uh, and when I stumbled upon activism, that that was very much meaningful and purposeful for me. And I think, again, you know, that's an extraordinary privilege. I think for most of us, most people, work is something that's draining, uh, that is, you know, something where you have to put on some sort of professional persona. It's something that you just have to do to, like, get the bare minimum, um, you know, resources you need to live. It's like this really um, degrading and dehumanising thing. You know, I obviously didn't want that. And I had, I think, again, you know, it's a matter of privilege to be able to take the time and space to search for work that gives your life meaning, gives your life purpose. For me, that was, you know, activism was creating change, was trying to create opportunities for other people to take collective action to. So I know like when I was going through school and when I started at uni as well, it was all this focus on entrepreneurship. You know, we had like the the web booms and, you know, Silicon Valley taking off in the States. And that's where a lot of people who wanted to see change made, but also have the potential upside of fame and fortune. Sure. Went into entrepreneurship, but it sounds like there's a big sort of overlap between you just wanted to see a better world, you wanted to make a change and do something good, yep. which can draw some people into a startup for you know maybe mixed reasons. You do allow yourself the luxury of thinking, I'm making the world a better place. Let's say somebody yep. works at Apple, you say, I, I'm making the world a better place through products we're making and selling at an amazing margin and becoming the most valuable company in the world. Can you see a parallel version of yourself where you went into private industry with that same fuel as it took you into activism or was that not really on the cards for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's probably a couple of points here. I mean, I think there's, there's a point around whether I could see myself going into you know, some sort of social impact business, you know, a social enterprise. And I think at one point, perhaps my theory of change would have permitted me to do that. I don't think it, it would now. I just believe that fundamentally the system is broken and that... And thereby to play in it, it, it corrupts anything you're trying to do within that system. 
Yeah, and I think that like fundamentally we need to do work around organising communities, building the capacity and power of our communities to get to a point where we're able to call for you know radical structural and systemic change around the, the very incentives that guide all of our behaviour. You know, this, this profit motive, this this growth motive. But at the same time, you know, I I do fundamentally believe that social change is an ecosystem that we all have a variety of roles to play, and that includes a variety of social enterprises. It includes a variety of folks. Who, who who play insider roles, people you know, folks who who are chaining themselves to locking onto trees and, and to trains to try and stop construction on coal mines. It includes a whole variety and, and spectrum of different folks. I think as long as we all have this this consistent uh, analysis, how the problem manifests itself and how it is a, a structural and systemic problem, not just a you know superficial band aid one um, that we can solve within the current constraints of our system. Uh, as long as we have that current analysis, I don't think we do, then, then, then things are fine. Uh, and I, so I think you know, part of my work uh, at Democracy in Colour is doing some of that you know, visioning work to try and share that message that like, at the end of the day, there's one structural challenge here, which is you know, predatory capitalism, it's neoliberalism, and there are a variety of ways that it manifests, whether it's the climate crisis, whether it's labour rights abuses, whether it's racism, whatever it is. But we have one enemy, which is a system that takes human beings with hopes and dreams and turns them into nothing more than profit and loss calculators, turns them into numbers on somebody's spreadsheet and and equates society with the market and sees the prioritisation of of profit over human potential. All of these different things that that, that result in all of these other challenges. And I think that's the the main challenge we're facing. And and a a lot of my work and a lot of Democracy and Carl's work has been trying to put forward that vision and get some alignment around that, irrespective of what issue we're working on. And so I think that's the same answer to your question that, you know, yes, social change is an ecosystem and we need a whole variety of different people playing their roles, whether it's the more insider folk or the more quote-unquote radical folk. We all need to be on the same page about, you know, how does this problem manifest and what does the solution look like? Otherwise, we don't have a hope of, of getting to the root causes of all the issues that we deeply care about uh, and finding real solutions as a result. It's a really good sort of rundown of of what you're doing now, sort of what is driving you and and how you articulate your work day in and day out. I'd love to go into more about democracy and color, but before we get to there, I'd love to know a bit more of sort of where this came from. We touched a bit on your your high school time, your upbringing. If there's a distinct memory you've got in your head or like a rough idea of when did you first get exposed to the idea that activism could be something you could do in your life? I'm not sure if this is when AYCC comes back in, but was there like a family friend or someone as a kid that was an activist? Or how did you actually come across this as a thing you could do with your life? Yeah, I mean, my first AYCC has a big part to play in it. But I think my first experience of activism was with Amnesty International when I was in grade 10. I was part of an Amnesty International school group and I remember clearly going to the Amnesty International meetings every Monday lunchtime after assembly and we'd plan these small campaigns and we'd do like a variety of fundraising drives to benefit whatever campaign was active at the moment or get, you know, signatures on petitions. Very low-level stuff. I remember talking That's about why they were able to operate in the schools, right? Amnesty International is... Yeah. It's, it's non-offensive. It's trying to get political prisoners released from jails, at least. Right. Some of it. 
Yeah, yeah. Some of the campaigns are very, you know, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to, to find fault with them, irrespective which, of what. Which is why they're able to operate in the schools, right? right? They have to be a very inoffensive thing. Yeah, and so you know, I remember you know speaking at assemblies about some of this, uh, this some of the work they were doing, and it was just it felt like being I was part of something bigger than myself. It felt like I was working with values aligned folk um, on something that mattered. It felt like it gave you know some meaning, some purpose to my life, and that felt good. That was the first experience. I got a, involved a little bit with student politics, which is another thing in it, in itself. But again, you know, a similar sense of you know camaraderie and working towards a, a bigger sort of vision and purpose. And then my experience with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, I, I joined the grassroots team with AYCC Queensland and then eventually started leading that team, doing a lot of organising around Brisbane, around broader Queensland, around coal, around appropriate destructive development. And that was a really powerful experience. One, again, because you have that sense of working with these incredible values-aligned folk, working towards something that's bigger than you, working towards something that you felt mattered, having impact, you know, feeling like you're having impact, actually having impact, but also because AYCC invests heavily in its volunteers, in its movement, in terms of training, in terms of personal professional development. Uh, and that was probably the first place where I, I started getting access to trainings on, you know, how do you do uh, effective campaigning? How do you, what does effective organising look like? Uh, how do you do strategy? All of these different things which have served me well over, over the years afterwards. Did you age out of AYCC? Because I, I know the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, for people listening who aren't familiar with the acronym yet, I was, I've actually talked to one of the organizers who's just opened up Townsville, Nick Carter. He's been on the show before as well. And I found an idea that the fascinating thing of that group where you, know, you, you age out, then you're, you're lost to the group because you're not part of the youth coalition anymore. Yeah. So you're constantly having to train, which is why they put such a good emphasis and investment into the um the new crews coming through because they're constantly losing experience after the back end so when did you leave aycc their age limit's actually quite generous for young for the definition of a young person which is 30 so i I didn't age out i'm 24 i I finished with aycc during the 2013 election i got a job working on the on, on that election and then did a little bit of electoral politics work worked on the 2014 senate by election in wa for a senator and then worked for a senator in Hobart for a brief project there as well uh, before going into um, a variety of human rights, um, international development, union work, which is the stuff that I do now. I think, I think people listening, there'll be, there'll be you know, kids out there in their late teens, I shouldn't call you kids, sorry kids, but your kids, who want to get into the politics route or, or want to follow in, in these footsteps you've taken. So it's kind of nice being able to sit down with you here and, and, and show people that you are a very relatable, easy-to-talk-to guy who's, who's done a lot in 24 years, which is incredible. How did that come up? How did the opportunity to jump into politics come about? And then sort of why did you jump in there with both feet, it seems? Well, that's the good thing about the Australian Youth Climate Coalition is that, uh, you know, if you look at any sort of politically engaged person, uh, there are probably three main areas they've come from. One is student politics, two is the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, or three is OATRI, which is essentially like a version of AYCC but focused on international development, an international development organisation led by young people. They have a little bit more strict definition of young person, you've got to be under 27, but you, you come from one of those three areas, generally speaking. You know, maybe you come from another one, you know, another big org is like you and youth, but generally speaking, you're a politically active person, whether you're a staffer for a politician, whether you're a campaigner at an NGO, they're probably the three spaces you've come 
come from? And that's you know the sort of the answer to your question around how did I, I get that first role, which was my first paid job uh, in campaigning on the 2013 election, is that I, I had all of this experience from the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, from a variety of other volunteering experiences as well. I had all this training that they'd invested, and I had a belief, you know, an intrinsic belief that they build in young people that you don't need to have a degree to create change, that you don't need to be over 30 or an adult to create change, that like our generation will inherit the consequences of the decisions being made right now on a whole variety of issues and climate change is particularly um, perverse intergenerational challenge, but on a whole variety of different issues we're a generation that are going to inherit these consequences and so we should be having a very powerful role in shaping the fight back against the policy discourse and the issue direction. So, you know, I have that confidence that comes from that, I think. We've got kind of the, the highway map now. We've got AYCC into politics and then what was between then and democracy and colour? Yeah, so after I finished working for those two senators, I uh, moved to Bangalore in India and worked for Jutka, which is the Indian equivalent of GetUp. There are about, I don't know the exact number, probably 25, 30 um, GetUp-type organisations around the world. So by that I mean they're nation-based, opposed to like international um, digital advocacy organisations like Avaaz or some of us. Um, So they're nation-based, they're progressive, um, they're member-led, member-driven, they're digitally facilitated. I think they're probably the main characteristics. So, you know, just like GetUp, a lot of differences, but just like GetUp, JATCA was, uh, you know, a progressive organisation, had a certain number of values. Um, It was multi-issue, so campaigned on a whole variety of different things. Member-led, and that our decision-making, our strategy was shaped by, informed by our members um, it's digitally facilitated predominantly, you know, the main tools were email and, and mobile. Mobile is a big, big campaigning tool in a country like India where you've got about, I can't remember what it is right now, but it's probably quite low, around 10% internet penetration. And yeah, it was a fantastic experience. How did this opportunity come up? What took yeah, a young Italian Chinese man who grew up in Brisbane to Bangalore, India? like the IT center of India. like That's right. Yeah, it's the Silicon Valley of, of, uh, of India. Uh, well, look, the, the thing that brought me there was um, Jatko was a, a startup at that, at that point. Uh, I was, think it was a couple of years old at that, at that point. Uh, and they didn't really have, there wasn't really any other organization doing that type of campaigning um, in that country at that time. Uh, you know, obviously there's a long and rich history of, of great, you know, grassroots and institutional campaigning and, and, and a big organisation like Greenpeace and Amnesty, et cetera, have, have presences there. But, the cultural of India. I mean, yeah, India. that's right. Uh, but not that type of like email oriented, digital oriented, digital first yeah. um, type campaigning. And the closest uh, equivalent would have been Change.org, which has you know has a presence there. But again, it's not the same. Change.org is, is more a platform uh, than a, a political advocacy, you know, organisation with um, a set of values that progressive yeah, values are trying. It was like a pretty much agnostic technology platform for doing petitions. Yeah, for enabling everyday folk to create change, um, whatever that looks like to them. And so uh, they were looking for someone who had that sort of background, that sort of like email campaigning, you know, the sort of get up a vase, some of us type email structure and campaigning and digital um, experience. Uh, and I had some of that. Uh, and so they, you know, were hiring for this, this role that was about like setting up early strategy, um, setting up early campaigns, getting early wins, um, building momentum, um, basically setting up the infrastructure for the organisation, helping train the, the team that was there. And that's what I was doing. Fantastic. We've had so much nice things to say about other groups. I've learned so much from this. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, no worries. So if 
got any left for the people you're currently working with now, the group you're, you're spending Democracy your time Democracy Color, with. yes, I can say some stuff about that. So let's take it from the top, because we'll be I, I, I only know that you guys are a racial justice movement for people of color, by yep. people of color. Sure. That's it. Uh, so I'll start at the beginning. Democracy in Colour is a racial justice organisation led by people of colour. We do two main things. So the first thing we do is a lot of um, campaigning around structural racism. The second thing we do is uh, leadership development, capacity building work to strengthen uh, the political voice of communities of colour. Uh, we're, you know, not interested in reinventing the wheel. So like very much um, we were set up to address three gaps that we saw in the space. The first gap being that, you know, most work that happens in the space is, is service delivery, education, welfare type work. Uh, that work's obviously important, but it's not, like we said earlier, you know, social change is an ecosystem, and there was a core actor that was missing, which was that campaigning work. So we set Democracy in Colour up to be a campaigning outfit. The second gap was that we wanted to create more opportunities for impacted communities to run and win on the issues that matter to them. In essence, we wanted to create a racial justice organisation that was led by people who experience racial injustice. And so Democracy in Colour is an organisation that is entirely led by um, people of colour. And, you know, we've got a team of 40 incredible campaigners of colour around the country. Uh, and the third gap was that we wanted to tackle racism from a more structural perspective. So not just treating this issue as this like isolated, solid thing over in the corner, but seeing it as, as a symptom of a broader broken system that seeks to capitalise on the pain it creates to weaponise our differences, to use communities of colour as this convenient scapegoat to get us to shout at each other, point the finger of blame at each other, as opposed to pointing the finger of blame at the broken rules and the billionaire oligarchs who manipulate us, who lie to us, who do whatever it takes, really, to prop up a system that works for them and vested interests at the expense of the opportunity and dignity of everyone else. So that's the two-minute summary. That's, that's a powerful, <laughs> yes, synopsis of a group. That's fantastic. So what are you doing with them? As in my, my role there, I'm the national director, so I mainly do fundraising, partnerships, and, and strategy work. But you're very busy in the course of a week. Oh, well, look, I, I have a great time. Yeah. I appreciate the, the time taken out to, to tell me all about it, which is really of great. Of course, of course. So that'll be really interesting to people like among the audience who are interested in, in racial justice work. I've, I've played your speeches at the State Library to a couple listeners of the show, a couple friends of mine. They're like, racial justice, that's really interesting. And unfortunately, like, myself, you know, with my yeah. Caucasian background, my friend with the Caucasian background, we're like, uh, we, I, we don't really know how to start to grapple with this. Luckily, yeah. The way the group set up, you don't have to deal with kind of onboarding people into a world that we haven't experienced. I, I like that you guys are staffed by people who have first-hand knowledge and like they, you know, you, you know what you're fighting against. Whereas you have to first teach people like me what what are we fighting against? I don't understand. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think for us, it's it's a matter of again, we've all got a role to play, um, and we believe social change is an ecosystem. And we saw there was. Uh, a lot of organisations and a lot of opportunities for white folk and for allies to do organising around this issue and also like um, probably a disproportionate role that they were playing in terms of leading all of these different organisations. You look at most institutional, not grassroots, but institutional organisations that do work around racism and they're led by white people um, or almost entirely comprised of white people. And you know, that's, that's fine, but we wanted to, again, where are the gaps? Um, how can we value add? And one of those gaps, like I mentioned, that second gap, was that we wanted to create more opportunities where impacted communities could not just be participants, but actually run it, you know, actually shape the messaging, shape the narrative and do so, you know, run and win on these issues and do so on their own terms. So that's, yeah, that was a big part of, of, of the organisation. 
So I like to always ask, like, what gives you hope? What keeps you working at it? What keeps you motivated to keep trying to make a change or a dent in this huge problem? I think there's, with every challenge comes an opportunity. Uh, and I think we talked about, you know, the climate crisis just then, right? Being this big, big challenge. But there's also an extraordinary opportunity. If we fight for it in these frames, it's not inevitable. But it's an extraordinary opportunity to create tens of thousands of, of good, well-paying, unionised jobs in um, the manufacturing and design and, and construction uh, and delivery of, of renewable energy, of retrofitting old buildings with like energy efficient appliances and, and, and lights and etc. A rapid expansion of public transport. Like there are all of these opportunities. With every challenge comes all of these opportunities. So I think but for me the biggest opportunity again like the theme of this is you know taking it back to the structure and the system um, that's at play here. Uh, I think there's there's this extraordinary opportunity and this gives me a lot of hope. Um, there's this extraordinary opportunity to like imagine for the first time I think you know what what would it, at least for you know Western cultures I and mean, plenty of other cultures have done this. Imagine, like, what, what does it look like to build a, a system that prioritises the maximisation, you know, of human potential over profit, that maximises collective, you know, gain over short-term self-interest, that, that sees the, the, the unit of the community as, as the, the, the prime unit as opposed to the individual, that, you know, sees a balance between people and planet. I feel like... You know, there's just so much sadness, the, the core emotion almost of all the core emotions of like our current system of, of predatory capitalism are probably like shame and, and guilt, dehumanisation. Like I think we every every day, you know, there are a hundred different instances where we're dehumanised, whether it's at work. Um, whether it's on public transit, you know, getting to work, going from work, whether it's at home, you know, whether it's looking on the TV. There's, there's these dozens of different examples where you're dehumanised as a person every day, where you're told you're not worthy um, because of whatever, you know, you're too big, you're too small, you're too tall, you're too short, you're, you know, not rich enough, you didn't come from the right part of town, you're too dumb, you're too smart, whatever, you know, they're not the right skin colour, you're not the right gender, you're not the right sexuality, whatever it is, there are all of these, you know, dozens of different ways that our society, that our system tells us that we're just not worthy, that we're dehumanises us every day. And I just think it's such a horrible way to live. And I think we all feel that way, right? Um, and, and we might not consciously think about this, but unconsciously we do. You know, you look at the stats, right? Like almost half of all Australians will experience some form of mental illness over their lifetime. That's a, that's a crisis, right? We've got a crisis of anxiety, we've got a crisis of depression, we've got a crisis of mental health issues. And this is not an accident. It's not accidental. It's constructed by the environment that we live in. I just think it's just so sad. Like our lives are just so collectively sad. And the opportunity to like build something that to build a society and a system that saw value in us, in a human being, because they're human, like that's it. You're, you're, you're worthwhile, you're, you've got dignity, you've, you're, you know, you've, you've got value and you've got worth because you're a human. It sees people as people first, right? Not defines their worth by like how much capital they can create or you know, how much you know, value they can bring to an economy, but just sees them as like worthy because they're human, because of all the intrinsic potential that comes with that. I think the solution, like 
only if we look at it in a structural perspective. It's not inevitable. But if we look at climate change being actually a symptom of capitalism, you know, if we look at it in, in, in those perspectives, and if we look at like how this current system is actually fundamentally incompatible with life itself, then it provides us with an extraordinary opportunity to start to reimagine what does a society that sees people as people what does that look like? What does it look like to, to bring dignity back to our lives, to bring humanity and intrinsic worth and value back to our lives? And I think that's an extraordinarily exciting conversation to have. You know, there's so much beauty in, in humans and, you know, our lives, so much untapped beauty that can be tapped if we uh, work towards it. Because I, I don't really know how to end it from there. <laughs> I'm just going to go out on that note from Tim. That was beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, Tim. It was a Thanks pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> So that was, I thought, and I hope you did too, a, a pretty good conversation with Tim. He's a very inspiring young man doing amazing work, and I was so grateful he took some time out from a very busy schedule to talk to me. And what I took away from that is that there's a lot of really well-intentioned, smart, hardworking people out there working in various different fields for various progressive causes. And as Tim said himself so well, we need to stop seeing silos between us. I got a lot out of sitting down with Tim, even though climate change is my number one fear. It's my number one priority. It's what keeps me up at night. But what Tim's working on is also very important, and he's completely right that we have an opportunity now to make the kind of world we want, to reshape a lot of power structures that have been unequal and unfair for a lot of people for a long time. So I thought it was a very good chat to bring to you guys to let you know what other people are working on in this space. And also to let you know that if you are someone who's working in the climate space right now, but you really connected with what Tim said, and that's a movement where you feel a lot of kinship, then it's okay to go and work on that as well. We do need to move the ball forward on a lot of different fronts right now. And whether you're volunteering at an environmental group right now or thinking of getting involved, but do feel a call to get involved in racial justice or other progressive issues, then uh, go where your heart is and spend your time in the way that'll feel the best to you. We've got a lot of work to do, and we don't need anybody burning out, so take care of yourself and pursue your passion, just like Tim has. Thank you so much on behalf of the whole Climactic team for listening. On behalf of Rich Bowden, Climactic co-founder, producer Caleb Fidicaro, designer Abigail Hawkins, composer Greg Grossi, special guest Tim Lacerdo, and senior advisor Gretchen Miller, and for me, Mark Spencer, I'd like to say thank you so much for your time and hope you tune in again next week. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media dot studio.